Today's guest on the enemies list is Sarah Ashton Carrillo. Sarah's a combat medic in Ukraine, an American journalist who, during her time there, decided that she was going to step up and play her role as best she could in fighting against the Russian invasion and genocide in Ukraine. We're totally delighted to have her today as a very special guest on the podcast, and I look forward to this conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it tremendously. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on The Enemies List today. I am so glad to talk to you. I haven't talked to you since you were injured a few weeks ago, since you were wounded in combat a few weeks ago. Uh, First off, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I know you're back at hard at work, but your injuries were were pretty pretty painful, apparently. Yes, Rick. Well, it's an honor to be here. That's the only word to use is honor due to the fact that you and some of your friends back in the United States care so much about what we're doing here in Ukraine and You've been a tremendous supporter of our fight for liberty and liberation against the tyranny of uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian war criminals. So thank you for having me as a guest today. Absolutely delighted. Delighted. As for my injury, it was very unique because I'm a combat medic and I'm the senior combat medic of an infantry uh, unit. And so for me to get hit when I did forced me to focus on my own injuries And you're right. They were very painful, very severe. The good news is I'm lucky. You have been a tremendous supporter of veterans for a long time. And ultimately, all of us who served in any capacity in any military, if we're alive, we're the lucky ones. And while I have some permanent nerve damage, I don't have feeling currently in the lower part of my hand, a significant amount of tissue was removed. I was in the Mm -hmm. hospital for more than two weeks just due to this hand injury and and a little one on my face. Right. But ultimately a few more inches and it would be a lot worse situation. So I'm blessed and I'm happy to be here talking to you today. Well, Sarah, I'm, I'm glad you're recovering quickly. That is, that is great news. What I've always noticed is that's been infectious almost is this sense of Ukrainian morale. It just won't quit. It just doesn't, I mean, it, it, no matter how dark it looked a year ago, I think one thing here that has just been really remarkable is that the Russian morale has been what it inevitably would be from a group of war criminals and criminals and and people who are who are there to sack and pillage. It's been terrible morale. And the Ukrainians have this fighting spirit. I don't think we've seen it before in in, in a war in Europe in a very, very long time. This like indomitable will to just survive and get through this thing, and to push back to preserve Ukraine's integrity—it it is just something you've you've always reflected. That, like that energy and that enthusiasm and morale is a really powerful weapon in and of itself. I gather all of my strength from the Ukrainians I serve with. They are fighting for global liberty. Yep. And local liberation. 
is how I reference it. I like and it. the fact that in the first days they were fighting back with pretty much AK-74s AK and whatever other armaments they could get their hands on, and they stopped the sacking of the capital city against uh, people who have now been officially labeled uh, genocidists, right. speaks to this indomitable will that you spoke of. There's no firing squads waiting in the second line to kill any of us trying to desert like you see among the Russian enemies. Right. And that speaks volumes. People are still signing up every day, volunteering. People are turning of age, trying to sign up. People are trying to get waivers who are past 60 years old to fight for their homeland. How could I not be happy every day that I'm breathing, that I see the sunrise, that I see the sunset, and I can take part in this glorious, glorious battle for freedom besides and next to people who truly understand what that word means. And I, I just, I, I, again, I think that is what their greatest, their greatest strength in this whole thing is they never said, nah, we're going to roll up. And because of the first few days, as Russian armor units and the first tank guards army division were coming down from the west and north toward Kiev, that it looked like that was going to get just rolled. And and the Ukrainians, like they represented the power of people who are willing to say, fuck no, this is where we draw the line. We're going to fight it out. So speaking of that, it has been a – Russia's, Russia's fortunes have fallen in Ukraine by basically by the day. And although yes. it has been a very long, very difficult fight for the Ukrainians, the spring offensive seems to be warming up. And without any kind of OPSEC violations, because it's the last thing we want to do – um, it does seem right now that Ukraine is poised to start making uh, some territorial recaptures in in in, in the areas that the, that the Russians have been dominant now for a few months, um, and it seems like the Russians are on a state of of near collapse. I mean, they're down to human wave attacks essentially. They're not. This is not a professional military uh, that you're fighting, but it's a numerous and well armed military. That's a great point. Before I answer about the so-called counteroffensive. <laughs> I'll relay my exact experiences fighting against them in open trench warfare. There was a field. They were a few hundred meters across from us. Right. And at least six times by, I mean, we were under attack 24 hours a day. Right. But six real battles took place. And each battle carried the same planning. They would hit us with artillery. The drone would stay overhead a little bit longer. And then armor would come across this open field. Mm -hmm. along with some so-called assault troops. And every time, we were victorious. Right. And this happened up and down the front lines. So yes, it, this idea of waves is not just a hyperbole. It's what's really taking place. I'm going to tell you this, Rick. I don't know what a counteroffensive is. What I do know is that we are currently counterattacking in Bakhmut. We're currently right. counterattacking in places all along the front. So... I'm not certain that anyone will know if a counteroffensive takes place because in our eyes, we're fighting every day anyway for liberty, for liberation, mm -hmm. for return to the 1991 borders. So it's not as though somebody's going to come up to my unit and say, hey, guys, wake up. It's time for a counterattack. Right. It's just business as usual for us. Even if the Russians knew, and I want them to hear this, and I want all the people who doubt Ukraine to hear this even if the Russians knew all of our plans, we would still execute them better, more fully, and we That's would right. still end up routing them. The surprise is simply for logistical planning. 
I mean, Ukraine had a professional military going into this, but it really seems like the Ukrainian armed forces now are fighting at a level of technological sophistication that it's, it is, I mean, I've watched the play, the byplay in Bakhmut where you'll got, you'll let the Russians get back in a little bit, whack them. They pull back out. I mean, it's it really is like you. The Ukrainian military seems to be controlling a lot of the cadence of the battlefield right now in a way that uh, it is a is a huge tactical and strategic advantage. Our commanders are some of the most intelligent human beings mm-hmm. that could be walking this earth. Let alone the fact that they are leading us in the military. My personal commander is a nuclear right. physicist. Right. So here we have a nuclear physicist leading us into battle. Our casualty ratio is so staggeringly one-sided in our favor, thanks to the fact that we have a nuclear physicist as our commander, because we understand basic principles of math, basic principles of science. We're not just being sent in there to this, quote, grinder. Right. And a lot of that was thanks to the United States, thanks to the United Kingdom. A lot of NATO exercises took place in 2019, 2020. Mm -hmm. Shout out to President Trump who actually did put boots on the ground here, uh, unlike President Biden, who's just supporting us through military weapons and technology, because the Ukrainians themselves don't need other armies to come in and fight the war for them. We have the commanders. We have the manpower. What we need are weapons and weapons now, as you and I have discussed in the past. Many times, yes. But ultimately, this idea of United States soldiers needing to come in or anybody else needing to come in and fight a war for the Ukrainian military is a misnomer and truly just Russian propaganda. Well, I think that's one thing that's um, it's important to talk about is uh, I, you, uh, Ukraine is now starting to see some of the flow uh, into the country of Western armor. And, and artillery has been coming for a while now. Anti-air is starting to flow in and armor starting to flow in. Is that making a difference already on the battlefield, to your knowledge? We're a very decentralized military. Right. And while you have plans very closely held in Kiev, along the front, commanders are utilizing weapons in in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak for other units. What I can speak is for our unit. We have weapons from Bulgaria, weapons from Sweden. We have weapons that were manufactured here in Ukraine and weapons that were manufactured in the former Soviet Union. So we've been seeing these weapons coming in and whenever they're available, we have them to utilize. Ultimately, though, it's not a nuclear. You don't need to be a nuclear physicist. You don't even have to have rocket science. You don't need to be a nuclear physicist to understand that Western armor and Western military weapons will help make the difference against a dilapidated and cowardly Russian military where all they can do is sacrifice their own men. And I'd like to just say something about the sacrifice of the Russian soldiers. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin and his war criminals in the Kremlin aren't just carrying out genocide against Ukrainians. They're genociding their own people. That's right. It is right now, it is going to blow a generational hole in Russia, a demographic hole in Russia that it could not afford because he is sacrificing a generation mm-hmm. of young men on the battlefield, Absolutely. a generation of them. And and now, somebody told me the other day, and I haven't run the statistic down, that the average age of the Russian soldier on the battlefield in the first part of the war was like 21, and now it's like 40. I mean, they are grinding through people at a rate that is, I, I it is 
unsurprising because it's Vladimir Putin, because he's a terrible military leader and he's way overrated in that department. But it's also, it's just a really grim thing. I mean, obviously a lot of the Russians are not exactly, if there weren't firing squads in the second line, they would not be going over that wall every day or going over that, that trench every day. Absolutely not. And let's talk about another fact. I don't care what the polls say. The war is not popular in Russia. And the right. reason we know that is because Putin has kept the war out of St. Petersburg and Putin has kept the war out of Moscow. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, this draft that they're doing, this mobilization of Russian soldiers is very one-sided. Right. It's out. Uh, if it and when the draft would come to Moscow and come to St. Petersburg, I think that's when you'll ultimately see a lot of protesting on the streets, a lot of pushback. And we probably are seeing this coming because with the false flag attack that they alleged the drone right. coming into Moscow, for them to make this claim, clearly it's something that they're preparing their own populace for because our allies know that we're not attacking the Kremlin dome with the right. drone. And somehow this drone made it through all of their air defense. Right. That was propaganda meant for Russians by Russians. I, I, when I saw how crisp the video was, it was a big giveaway to me that, <laughs> yes. that this was a, a Russian false flag operation writ mm -hmm. large. And, and with the exact framing of the explosion just over the flag and the dome, I mean, come on. But that's, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a part of this is that, that the Russians don't, don't live in a, a country without extensive controls over the media. Those, their people, as you point out, it won't get real in St. Petersburg and Moscow until there are people being pulled in for draft. And because they're not seeing it on their television, they're not seeing it at night, they're not seeing it on the news. They're seeing the special military operation had its 400th day of success. And, you know, it it, it, it is a striking example because, you know, it's, it, the Ukrainian government doesn't seem to be trying to hide the fact that Russia is hitting, you know, civilian targets across the country every single damn day. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think Americans, they kind of get it, but they don't. I mean, Russia is expending these incredibly, this, this shrinking pool of their precision missiles, not on Ukrainian military targets, but on civilian targets, on hospitals, on schools, on apartment buildings. Kharkiv is a city that I've spent the vast majority of my time in Ukraine living in, and I'm currently with the Kharkiv uh, Territorial Defense Unit, although we get deployed into the Donbass. Right. Here is where I saw so much civilian death, so much deprivation caused by Russians against the civilian population, and yet it fails. In Izum, I was on hand for four days as we exhumed more than 400 victims of Russian war crimes, mm. mummified, liquefied, there they were being taken out. And one thing that doesn't get spoken about regarding the Russian terrorism is how okay they were with it. 50 meters from the burial site of these 400 plus civilians was a mechanized Russian brigade. They were living in the same place that they were burying these people. They were okay with it. Why? Because at some point along the way, Russia has lost the ability to understand what humanity is as a whole. They've lost the ability to claim to be a, a nation state. They're a cabal, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're a mafia gangster laden regime run by a despot, but they are not a nation state. And they most certainly are not at the same level of humanity that 
most anybody else in civilized society could imagine. And so because of this, you see rockets raining down on the civilian populace. Children are killed. Grandmothers are killed. Hospitals are attacked. And these aren't one-off accidents. Right. This right. is what Russia's targeting. Why? Because we are routing them on the battlefield. Victory after victory after victory. And we know what destruction of Russian military objects look like. The oil depot that was destroyed uh, or partially destroyed was a valid military target sure. because they had a naval brigade right next to it. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, everything we attack is military infrastructure. Right. The vast majority of what the Russians attack is civilian infrastructure. This is why the War Crimes Tribunal is going to be running trials for years and years and years. Hundred oh, yeah. percent. I mean, the the there there, you know, folks. War has rules. Even the worst contingencies, war has rules, and the Russians don't play by them. As a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response, and that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Joe Trippi. In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com enemies to let the world know where you stand. Everybody's got a morning ritual. I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back. Do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value. So this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. One of the things that people in the, in the States are confused about is the Wagner group and mm -hmm. this Russian mercenary force that's, that's operating in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about what they are and how they've become almost like a, uh, almost like a tension point between Putin and the Russian military uh, there's sort of a, a, a chaos agent in the third in the third column here. Tell us a little bit about the Wagner Group and what they're doing in for Russia in Ukraine. So people can have a better understanding because the term private military contractor sanitizes what the Wagner Group is. Ultimately, let's go back 500 years and imagine piracy. The Wagner Group are basically land pirates operating at the behest of a despot, Vladimir Putin. They were put together uh, over time by a petty criminal 
uh, Progrosian, mm -hmm. the leader of the Wagner Group, is mm -hmm. somebody who was arrested for multiple crimes in the days of the Soviet Union. Yeah, he's a Vorivizokoni. He's a fucking mafioso. <laughs> yes, exactly. And a two-bit mafioso. That's mm -hmm. the problem, a two-bit mafioso. If he was successful, he wouldn't have to have the PMC. Right. Ultimately, he curries favor by putting together this group, the Wagner Group, named after the uh, famous musician. Mm -hmm. And they start engaging in places like Venezuela, in Africa, any place that they could extract natural resources Right. in order to line their pockets. Mm -hmm. And of course, Putin was receiving a percentage of this. Yeah, of course. When the Russian military failed so miserably in the early days of the war, these pirates basically got summoned back and were made the public face of this Russian uh, rejuvenation of, of their attacks on Ukraine. And due to the, and this is what Americans really could not fathom, due to the recruitment of some of the worst criminals in the Russian system where they were literally freeing the jails and giving contracts to rapists, murderers, mm -hmm. child molesters. All of a sudden, these waves, to use that word again, were coming at us. But just like the rest of the Russians, Progrosian was all talk. We are slaughtering, slaughtering mm -hmm. the Wagner Group en masse. And ultimately now what's being created from this vacuum is everyone scrambling for whatever remaining piece of the pie exists before the inevitable downfall and death of Vladimir Putin and the rest of the people in the Kremlin. And so you see the official uh, defense minister, you see the official general sure yeah. butting ahead with Progrosian. Ultimately, Putin wants this because Putin doesn't want anyone strong enough to threaten his regime. So at first we saw Katarov fighting with the generals. Right. Katarov, who was uh, from the semi-autonomous right. uh, Chechen Chechens, Republic, yeah. uh, the war criminal, also gangster. He has been pushed aside by Progrosian, and now Progrosian's the one battling it. But it keeps balance for Putin to remain in power. However, for the Russians as a whole, what it's done is made their already putrid military even weaker and uh, more rotten on the battlefield. Right. Right, right. One thing about uh, about the the evolution of where Ukraine's at right now, a few years ago, no one thought that Ukraine would be in consideration to join NATO. And now it seems like that is gaining an awful lot of momentum in Europe as a condition of of Ukraine's, you know, future security. That seems like something that after you win a victory on the battlefield against Russia, you're still going to have to have uh, you know, eternal vigilance unless the NATO Article 5 thing uh, is part of your protection. Um, where do you think the, the sort of feeling is on, on NATO membership right now, both in Ukraine and in Europe? So there's a lot of discussion over it. But the reality is that's what the diplomats are doing. The focus right. for the vast majority of the country is on achieving total victory and a transformative defeat of the Russian invaders. Right. In doing so, what does that mean? It means a return to the 1991 borders, and it means mm -hmm. the fulfillment of President Zelensky's 10-point peace plan. While NATO gets mentioned in that peace plan and as an ancillary part of it, ultimately, the European allies who have been tremendous for us are looking at it through the lens of this battle currently. The question is, does Ukraine even need NATO? at the end of this victory that we're going to achieve. Mm -hmm. We're going to have defeated the so-called second largest army in the world using a group of volunteers 
right. and help from allies. Mm-hmm. I think we'll all sit down, every country that's in NATO, and have serious discussions after victory takes place. No doubt there's going to be some words spoken at the coming summit and, you know, a couple of, I think it's now a month and a half away. Um, yeah. But the focus currently is on our counterattacks, so-called counteroffensive, mm-hmm. and also a return to the 1991 borders. Everything else after that, European Union, NATO, other defense alliances, all that is secondary to the current goal, which is defeating the Russians and making certain that not only will they never threaten Ukraine again, but they're not going to be threatening any NATO countries or any countries in the Caucasus that are not part of NATO. Right, because they they had ambitions to also take Moldova uh, back into the Mm -hmm. Russian sphere. And... And, and obviously, sort of Belarus is a bit of a client state right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you're right. Once the defeat is completed, it will transform Russia in a couple of major ways. First off, they're burning through, as you well know, they're burning through their armor inventory. They're, they're, they're now at the point where the tanks that are coming onto the battlefield on the Russian side are 1950s and 60s vintage. They're not anything in the modern in the modern era. And, and their, their reputation and their warfighting ability is very much collapsing, uh, and it will collapse after this. And most importantly, I mean, Vladimir Putin recognizes that he's going to get thrown out a window. Not mm-hmm. maybe not today or tomorrow, but it's going to happen in the it, probably in the next year. He'll be thrown out a window, or he'll Absolutely. die of he'll die of lead poisoning, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He recognizes, I think, at some level, that he has you know overextended and 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 is not going to win this thing. So as we start to wrap up, uh, Sarah, I wanted to ask a couple other things. I know you are about to kick off a podcast called Zero Line uh, yes. in the near future, talking to folks uh, who are engaged in this global struggle against authoritarianism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely, Rick. So <laughs> a publication came out, a very uh, in-your-face publication by the name of Resolute Square, <laughs> and <laughs> It launched uh, in the fall of 2022, and I was approached to be a columnist for that outlet. And basically, that group is all in for democracy, all in for freedom, all in for liberty, some of the exact issues I'm fighting for here. Right. So the people behind Resolute Square approached me and said, would you be interested in doing a podcast? And I said, absolutely, but let's look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is freedom on a global scale. Right. Because all of these things are interconnected. Ukraine's victory is going to be part of, and we've just mentioned this, the European narrative for the coming decades. Mm -hmm. But how does Moldova come into it? How did Georgia come into it? What's going on uh, with the new upcoming elections in the United Kingdom? And how will that, you know, in the by-elections affect something? So everything is a big puzzle. Just like we see within the United States, clearly the 50 states here in Europe and the rest of the world, everything has to play a part in a synergy or some sort of uh, also combative nature with each other, all the nation states. And in doing so, to have the perspective of having fought here against the Russian invaders has allowed me to understand the -the on-the-ground mechanisms that go into war, as well as the more diplomatic and analytical sides of it. I I think that's right. I think that, that idea that you've seen this thing up close and how people react when they when when authoritarianism comes rolling in, not with just online trolling, but with tanks, mm-hmm. is a really different perspective than a lot of people have. I mean, I know a lot of people in the global 
anti-authoritarian fight, but a lot, but the vast, vast, vast majority of us, myself included, you know, do so from behind the computer screen and, and don't see it up close and personal. So that we're, I'm excited to see how that turns out. I'm excited to see um, how that shapes up. So as we wrap up, I've got one time for one more question. What is it Ukraine still needs? I know, I know aviation assets are the number one thing we've been, we've been pushing that here in the States as uh, across a bunch of different fronts. Aviation assets seem to be the number one thing that Ukraine could still use right now to to level out the battlefield. Anti-air seems to be a high high priority need as well. What else do the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian armed forces need right now to to sort of reshape this battlefield and ensure that that Russia is defeated once and for all? In addition to the aviation tools that you just mentioned, both offensive aviation tools and the defensive ones with the air defense that protects our civilian population from the Russian terrorists, we need some basics. Oh, air raids. Sorry. Oh, dear. One of the basics, it's good. One of the basics is that we need artillery that allows us to send as many shells over at them as they send at us. Right. Even with all of our victories, sometimes we're looking at being outshot uh, 15 to 1 on some days. The, Rus- the Russians one. love the fucking artillery. And they're terrible at it. And yes. it's degraded <laughs> artillery. And right. so because of that, you don't even know where it lands, which they don't care about because they're terrorists. Right. However, more artillery, more armor that allows us to go ahead and make certain that there's entire battalions, entire brigades with the ability to <clears throat> move armor along with the infantry soldiers. Mm-hmm. And it's really just what any state that is looking to make sure that they have enough weapons to defend themselves is all we're asking for. So across right. the board, in addition to the interceptors, the A-10s, and then lastly, the air defense systems. I, I have pushed a couple of people in in the last few weeks in government. Like I was like, fuck the F-16s. Just give them, train them up on the A-10s and let's go to mm-hmm. town. That will, be the end, that will be the end of the ball game for mm-hmm. Russian armor in this battlefield space. It just, it will not, it will not, it will not go well for them when the big Bert comes on the field. <laughs> they wouldn't know. It would be like seeing some alien come in from Independence Day because they're so, they're so unprofessional anyway. They wouldn't understand what it would be to be attacked with even an A-10. Right. And they, oh. The Russians used to call it the Devil's Cross. I don't know <laughs> if they still do. That's what they called it back in, in, in NATO back in the, in the 80s and 90s when I was at, in my young Cold Warrior days. Well, Sarah Ashton Crow, thank you ever so much for coming on today. I look forward to your Zero Line podcast coming out. And please give our best regards to, to all your colleagues in the Ukrainian armed forces and in Ukraine. Uh, we are praying for you. We are struggling to uh, to push as much as we can to help you guys defeat the evil that is, that is Vladimir Putin's Russia and his war criminals. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. If I could just jump in of really course. fast. I'm going to be making a quick sojourn on behalf of ZSU to Washington, D.C., Terrific. I'll be in the Capitol May 15th through 19th. So if any of your audience wanted to look me up, I don't know when this is going to be airing, but I will be on Capitol Hill from May 15th. Let me, yeah, let, let me, uh, let me see what we can get put together between here and then. Awesome. Okay. Sounds Thanks great. again, Thank Sarah. Have much. a safe day. Slava Talk Ukraine. to you soon. Slava Ukraine. Bye. Today's number one on the enemies list is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Look, this is a guy who has had a hard life, a tough life, 
tragedy runs in his family like a river. And on the one hand, you almost want to feel for the guy. But it's also hard to forgive the anti-vax weirdness, the craziness, and his alliance now with Steve Bannon. This is a guy who is now running for president in the Democratic primary against Joe Biden, and he will not win. He cannot and will not win. But he's there because Steve Bannon put him there. He's there because Steve Bannon wants to drag off even a percent or two of Democratic voters who see the Kennedy name and still have that long tug on their heartstrings. Robert F. Kennedy knows he can't win, knows this will go nowhere, knows he's now using this as a platform to to promote his anti-vax views and his conspiracy theories. And the truth of the matter is, Steve Bannon did it. So I'd normally put Bannon on the enemies list for today, but, you know, the fucking guy's there forever. Uh, So Robert F. Kennedy, you should drop out of the race. If you believe in anything that your brothers or your family once believed in, you would drop out of the race immediately. But until then, you're on the enemies list. Get your shit together. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.